Hello world and welcome to the Overtone Warp Zone. This podcast is for people who enjoy games, love music, and want to know more about how their favorite songs work. In season one, we're taking a look at musical concepts found in pieces from Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. I'm Dan Bergman, and let's get started. Composing music is a difficult task. It's hard to string together a series of notes in a way that's novel enough not to be considered a rip-off of someone else's work, or even worse, in violation of copyright. On the other hand, it's hard not to be so novel as to have a melody that's unsingable, or so far out of left field that it doesn't even sound like anything listenable anymore. This is of course true in all areas of music making as well. I mean, how often has pop music been criticized of all sounding the same? There's a fine line between writing to fit a genre and plagiarism. As we'll see throughout the lifetime of this podcast, throughout all our different episodes, not all musical themes were created equal. Some melodies stand out better than others. Some melodies stand the test of time better than others. A song that was a banger when it came out in the 80s, for example, might be kind of hard to listen to today. One melody that has cemented itself in our subconscious is the one we're about to listen to. It's known as Type A in the game Tetris. We'll first listen to the Smash Bros. Brawl remix arranged by Yoko Shimamura. Are you getting some Russian vibes from this tune? The developer of the original Tetris game, Alexei Pajetnov, was an artificial intelligence researcher working for the Soviet Academy of Sciences in Moscow, who made a simple puzzle game involving tetrominoes. He was tasked with testing the capabilities of the hardware of his time, and his idea of doing so was in the form of games. The display that he was working with could only show text, so the blocks were represented by letter characters. Since the screen filled up very quickly with blocks, 
He built in the famous Tetris mechanic of clearing a full line to make room for more tetrominoes. The name Tetris came from a mashup of the word tetrominoes and Pajitnov's favorite sport, tennis, and his colleagues knew that they had a hit on their hands. The first version was released in 1984 for the Electronica 60. In 1989, half a dozen different companies claimed that they had the rights to create and distribute the Tetris software for their consoles. Eventually, an agreement brokered with Nintendo saw Tetris bundled with every Game Boy. At first, Nintendo of America head Minoru Arakawa planned to bundle Super Mario Land with the Game Boy. Computer game publisher Hank Rogers approached him and said, Mario would sell Game Boys to young boys, but Tetris would sell to everyone. It was Rogers who secured the exclusive rights to the game, and his packaging deal went through, making the Game Boy the third best-selling game console of all time today, and Tetris the best-selling game of all time across all its platforms. Now that we've been listening to this remix of Tetris Type A, let's have a listen to the original Type A for Tetris for the Game Boy, written by Hirokazu Tanaka. There's a reason that you might be getting a Russian vibe beyond the fact that the developer of this game is Russian. Have a listen to this performance by the Red Army Choir. This is the song Korobainki. It's actually a Russian folk song based off a poem written in 1861 by Russian poet Nikolai Nekrasov. The poem tells a story of one of the Korobainki, a peddler who sold fabric, haberdashery, books, and other small items, who falls in love with a peasant girl. While Hirokazu Tanaka arranged the song for the Game Boy version, it was also used in earlier versions of Tetris, such as this one for the Apple II. Why did this video game straight up rip off a Russian folk song for their main soundtrack? The answer lies in... Public Domain! Broadly speaking, a creative work in the public domain is one to which no exclusive intellectual property rights apply. This means that anyone could use those creative works for any reason. Those rights could have expired, been forfeited, expressly waived, or simply be inapplicable. For example, the works of William Shakespeare and Beethoven were written before copyright existed and thus fall under the public domain. Early silent films have been around for long enough that their rights have expired. 
Items like cooking recipes or formulae for Newtonian physics are not subject to copyright. In terms of music, public domain varies by country. In the United States, any musical work published prior to 1923 is in the public domain, which would apply to our Russian folk song Korobayenki. It is important, however, that a distinction be made between musical works and sound recordings. Musical works are things like sheet music and other compositions, while sound recordings are audio files, CDs, records, and so on. Under US law, this means virtually all audio recordings are copyrighted until the year 2022, unless express permission for use has been given. The only exception for using copyrighted materials without owner's permission is under fair use, which the Stanford University Libraries describes as any copying of a copyrighted material done for a limited and transformative purpose, such as to comment on, criticize, or parody a copyrighted work. Most fair use falls under one of two categories. Commentary and criticism, such as this podcast, or parody. But I digress. You may know that Tetris for the Game Boy had three songs. Type A, Type B, and... Type C. Did you know that Type C was also a song from the public domain? Here it is on the Game Boy by Hirokazu Tanaka. Here it is as performed by Glenn Gould. French Suite No. 3 in B minor, BWV 814, Movement 4, Menuet Trio, by Johann Sebastian Bach. Our first song, Karo Bainki, makes sense. It's a Russian folk song for a Russian game, and had been used in past iterations before the Game Boy. Why use this trio by Bach though? It even has French in the title of it. And French is not Russian. Interestingly, Type B on the Game Boy was a Hirokazu Tanaka original. This one arguably fits the Russian flavor somewhat better, and also got its own remix in Smash Bros. Brawl. This is arranged by Masafumi Takada. They obviously went the Spanish mariachi route, however. Now, you may think to yourself, Tetris is an isolated incident of video game music stealing from other sources. There's no way other composers have done this in different places. To that I say, you're wrong. There's even another example in our Smash Bros. soundtrack. This remix also debuted in Brawl, featuring two songs from the game Mario Bros. No, not Super Mario Bros. 
and was arranged by Shogo Sakai. So yeah, those first three seconds of the piece. That would be none other than Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's Ein kleine Nachtmusik, serenade number 13 for strings in G major, K525, composed in 1787. The piece shows up on the 1983 arcade version of Mario Bros. And the 1986 NES version. Both games are composed by Yukio Kaneoka, who, by the way, composed the title screen for the NES game and original work. This found its way into the Brawl remix of the song as well. After doing a little research, I discovered there are all kinds of examples of public domain music being used in video games, particularly from the mid-90s and earlier. For example, in 1989's Super Mario Land for the Game Boy, Becoming Invincible is not underscored by the familiar theme from Super Mario Bros. for the NES. Instead, we can hear this tune, arranged by Hirokazu Tanaka. Yes, that is the Can-Can, written in 1858 by Jacques Offenbach. Here it is performed at the Berlin Military Tattoo, conducted by Lieutenant Colonel Jean-Michel Sorlin. And for good measure, here it is arranged by Tim Wright for 1991's Lemmings for DOS. Here's one you might want to use as you walk down the aisle at your wedding, from 1990's Nesport of Might and Magic, composed by Masaharu Iwata. This is, of course, Johann Pachelbel's Canon in D, written in the late 1600s. Here it is performed by Jean-Francois Payard and the Canon Chamber Orchestra. While there are many, many more examples, I'll leave you with one more. 
In 1992's Ultima 7 for DOS, one quest has the hero go into a bee cave with giant bees to collect honey. And of course, here's the song you hear, arranged by Dana Glover. Yep, that would be Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov's Flight of the Bumblebee, written in 1900. So how come there are so many old games that basically legitimately steal music from other composers? Were the composers of these games not as creative? Why does this not happen so much anymore these days? I don't know if I have any definitive answers, but I do have some theories. In the 70s, 80s, and 90s, video games were fairly new and struggling for legitimacy. Perhaps composers of the day wanted those who played their games to hear something familiar that they could easily identify, as a way of connecting with people who wouldn't otherwise play their games. Another possible answer is that it was sometimes up to the game developer to provide sound for their game, and they maybe weren't proficient musicians themselves. In this case, it would be much simpler to just arrange an existing piece of music to play on your hardware, rather than come up with something original. As far as theories as to why this isn't done so much today, just imagine what it would be like if the next AAA title to release had something like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony as the opening music. Something seems a little strange about that now. Perhaps because gaming isn't so much fighting for legitimacy today as it did 30 or 40 years ago. We also have such a wealth of good original video game music that it might feel like borrowing music from the public domain would be a cop-out. Also, we technically do have public domain and other music that has been written for purposes other than gaming in video games, such as when a character has background music playing on the radio or for some other reason, but often not as the main theme of the game. So thanks to the public domain, early game developers didn't have to pour a bunch of resources into licensing existing music or composing original music, and could instead devote that time and money into good gameplay. As a result, we have scenarios in which a Russian folk song has become immortalized not for being a Russian folk song, but for its pairing with the world's all-time best-selling game. And now, another Overtone Warp Zone announcement. OvertoneWarpZone.com This is the new home for all things Overtone Warp Zone. Visit OvertoneWarpZone.com to stay up to date on the releases of new episodes and for links to all the platforms that you can listen to the show, as well as links to all of OTWZ's social media platforms, including Patreon. A huge thanks to Kieran Mulchan for setting up and running this website. You rock. Don't ever change. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast or suggestions of a song or music topic. Leaving a rating or review on your podcasting platform is a great way to share that with me and helps Overtone Warp Zone gain some exposure. Until next time, keep playing. Keep playing.